I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. I have got another podcast on ancient Rome for you today, and particularly this one is going to be focusing on the Pax Romana and Imperial Rome. That's right, we are talking big ancient history topic time, because this podcast is going to address some of the huge questions surrounding Imperial Rome. Why did the Roman Empire last so long? What were the keys to its success? Why were its soldiers so effective? And so much more. Now, hosting today's podcast is the one, the only Dan Snow, and his guest is the brilliant Roman historian Adrian Goldsworthy, who has also written extensively about the Pax Romana. This was a brilliant chat, and I've no doubt that you are going to absolutely love it. Enjoy. Where should we even start? I mean, okay, well, let's start. Where does your book start? My book starts actually talking about my own life and the sense that I've grown up in peacetime because my parents were of the generation. They were sort of a little bit older than average. My father had been an apprentice in the Merchant Navy during the Second World War. My mother remembered the Blitz in Cardiff. They talked about the war, and I was obviously born after the war, and there's a sense that it's been a life of peace, and yet every year of my life, someone in Britain's armed forces has been killed. You know, I, I was born in 69, so the, the troubles flare up in Ulster soon after. It's, it's natural, and yet you still consider there is such a difference in terms of sort of quantity of disturbance and violence between now and either of the world wars. And we were a very comfortable generation. We've grown up with a lot of the privileges, you know, better health, better life expectancy, the whole thing. So when people talk about the Pax Romana, which is the, this famous thing, the achievement of the Roman Empire that even people who don't like empires struggle to knock, then you start to think, well, OK, people are now criticising, saying, well, perhaps it wasn't as complete as that. But what do we really mean? When has the world actually been totally at peace? And the answer will sadly be never. But do you get something that's very different in the Roman period that was worth looking at? So it, it all came from that, really. Yeah, I think you raised a really interesting point there, which is that people might talk about the Pax Britannia in the 19th century. Britain fought wars every single year in the 19th yeah. century. Pax Americana. America has used its armed forces quite a lot in, yeah. in the 20th and early 21st centuries. And yet there is something, isn't there, about hegemonic power that over big chunks of the world can exercise a rule or control that means there are there is probably probably less fighting than there otherwise might have been. And I suppose if we start with the Pax Romana, when, do, when would you say it starts, the Pax Romana? It starts very slowly, because obviously the Romans conquer an empire. You know, they begin as this little city on the Tiber, and suddenly they own most of the known world. Well, not that suddenly, because it's over several centuries. So the Romans are conquerors, the Romans are aggressors. They talk quite openly about 
you know, Julius Caesar will talk about pacifying Gaul, areas where the Romans have never been before, but somebody looked the wrong way at his ambassadors, so he sends the legions in and suppresses them by force if they don't submit to that threat. And that's pacification. And he's quite open as well. He thinks it entirely natural and right for the Gauls to fight for their freedom, but doesn't question his right as a Roman, it's for the good of the Republic, that we should conquer them. So it's the, the concept of Roman peace is different from the start. The modern idea is this, this ideal that somehow peace is the natural state, that countries, nations should live in harmony with each other or at least not actively fighting each other. You go back to the ancient world and the situation is very different, but perhaps it's more of a warning that our own period is actually the unusual one in human history. Um, and things we accept as natural, as normal, pretty recent creations and fairly precarious as well because again you know I'm British so I've, I've lived in a very comfortable secure environment all my life and although there have been conflicts with Britain's armed forces nothing has threatened our existence I mean the Cold War perhaps very indirectly but it never really felt that way um, unlike 1940 where there's a threat of invasion unlike the First World War back to you know we had the 200th anniversary of Waterloo last year those major conflicts have occurred those threats have been there they haven't in my lifetime, but if you lived in large parts of the world, you would scarcely describe your experience as a time of peace. So it, it comes back again to that. We tend to forget in Western democracies how lucky we are and then assume that our life, what we assume as normal, we can just extend to history and the rest of the world. And it's, um, that's a danger because it means you don't really understand the present day, let alone the past. Right. So let's try and understand the past. And one of the greatest questions really in history, people are fascinated by it. Why Rome? Why this little city on the Tiber, no superabundance of resources or, or monopoly on intelligence. Why did Rome, and it took a while, conquer its neighbours and then its further neighbours and then eventually the whole of the Mediterranean basin and, and most of Western Europe? The Romans are obviously were a very aggressive people. The Roman Republican system was designed to encourage its political leaders were also military leaders. The greatest glory was serving the state by defeating an enemy in battle and you could win the right for triumph and parade through the centre of Rome. And that was the highest honour anybody really could get. So more recently, particularly post-Vietnam, scholars have tended to look and think, well, the Romans, they're just driven to expand. They're just more aggressive than everyone else, and they have to fight wars. One scholar described it as a biological necessity. Every year you go out and do massive violence to somebody. Problem with that is that we know the Romans won. We know they created an empire. But when you look at the ancient world, Everybody is incredibly aggressive. Yes, if we'd looked at the Etruscans, were they sort of similarly martial valour was highly prized? And, okay. Absolutely. All the symbols, its armour, its weapons, its heroic stories. There are even those wonderful tomb paintings um, in uh, not far from Rome that show what looked like the sort of the Etruscan versions of some of the early Roman legends where they're winning. So they've got their heroes defeating Romans and Latins and things like that. We don't quite understand it because we haven't got enough of their culture left. Democratic Athens, you know, it's one of the most radical democracies in history, incredibly aggressive, turns a league and a defensive league against the Persians into its own empire and then picks on smaller states, utterly ruthless. You know, you've got to read Thucydides and the debate over what to do with the Mytilenes to see, you know, it's this whole session of, well, we can massacre these people because it'll be for the, you know, their own good in the long run and for our good. And that's all that matters. So, so go on then. Why Rome then? Why Rome? I think the secret actually comes from, or is it hinted at in some of the legends. If you think, story of Romulus and Renus probably is just a myth, but Romulus gathers the vagrants and outcasts of Rome to form his new city. They steal their wives from the Sabines. Early legends are full of people coming to Rome and becoming Roman. And 
when the Romans freed a slave, if his owner was Roman, that slave got Roman citizenship. He had some limits on his rights, but the next generation, fully Roman. By the first century BC, they're openly admitting, well, all of us are descended from slaves somewhere in our ancestry. Nobody else did that. I mean, Athens got far less generous with its citizenship as it became more democratic. The rights of being a voter at Athens were so important that you weren't going to spread them round. Whereas the Romans will come and they defeat somebody in war, very soon they're giving people Latin citizenship, then full Roman citizenship. And your enemies of today help you win the wars of tomorrow. And that capacity to absorb is probably unique in history. You know, when you think you'll eventually have emperors from Spain, from Africa, from Syria, um, all of these people are Roman. They've got citizenship, they've got the legal status. St. Paul, you know, look at the New Testament. A Jew from Tarsus, as far as we know, didn't even speak Latin. But the family has done something to earn this. He has absolutely different legal rights to everybody else. He is part of that system. So that capacity, not just to win wars, but in a sense to win the peace, to absorb people and to turn them into Romans who willingly get something out of the system and believe in Rome. And that's something no other empires have done to anything like the same extent. It, it's more extreme even than, say, the, the melting pot of, of America in recent centuries. This capacity to absorb others, but yet keep your identity. So, so if, when they conquer someone else in the Italian peninsula, there are obviously rebellions and things like that, but on the whole, you think they're being able to sell these guys an image of Rome they can be part of and involved in and, and work towards together. Very much so, because the one thing they don't do is intervene in your day-to-day -day administration, your day-to-day -day affairs because they, they really can't be bothered and they haven't got the bureaucratic machinery to do it and they're not interested. As long as you toe the line, as long as you turn up when they say we need so many thousand soldiers to help us in the next war, as long as you don't do anything that's hostile to their interests, they really don't care what you're doing. So it's this odd mixture of bringing them into the system, you become Roman, but if you want to be a voter at Rome, you've got to be physically present. So it's only the rich that can actually bother to do it. But you get the legal privileges. You get, when you go off and fight alongside the Romans in war, you'll get a share of the plunder. You'll get a share of the spoils of victory. And you have that security of belonging, in a sense, to the biggest gang on the street. You know, there's nobody else who's going to be able to take the Romans down. And it, it's striking that Hannibal bases his entire strategy, really, on trying to break away Rome's allies. You know, I'll be nasty to you, I'll beat you in battle, I'll show you I'm better. All your allies will leave you because I'm now the strongest. Very few do. Far fewer than you'd expect, and far fewer than clearly he expects. They fight on because he's not really offering them very much. And the Romans do. So it's it's an odd mixture. You've got this aggression, but it's a little bit like the you know, the the, the, the tag from Virgil that the Rome's destiny is to spare the conquered and overcome the proud with with war. And it divides the world up into the proud who deserve to be duffed up, and the, the conquered that you've already beaten, so therefore you can be nice to. Um, it's you know it's a very simplistic view of the world, but it's it's the way the Romans thought. Is there a moment after which the Roman Republic was destined for for greatness, in which you can identify? Okay, this is when they leave from being a sort of regional power in central Italy to being potentially a continental power. It's probably the struggle with Carthage because that takes them to Sicily in the first place, then it'll take them overseas as well to Spain, to Macedonia, to Africa. There is a sense it's a little bit like America in the First World War. There's been the potential to be this great superpower, but they haven't flexed their muscles. And suddenly the Romans realise how strong they are. The classic comparison is this. If you look at Athens, which is by far the most successful, biggest of the Greek cities, its citizen population never numbers more than about 60,000. Very, very generous estimate. 
Rome, by the time of the conflict with Hannibal, if you include the Allies, has just military manpower of over 700,000. I mean, it's, it's on a scale so much bigger because they've absorbed all these people. Very few of these people are ethnically Roman or Latin even. And then once they can start to expand that and do the same thing further afield with people who are culturally far more different to them, that's really the, the path. But it's also it's the time that sees the breakdown of the Roman Republic as well into civil war. There are lots of strains in trying to do this because they, they don't like change and they don't adapt terribly well into politically. Um, and they don't deal, you know, they send these soldiers off to fight wars in Spain for 10 years and then they don't do anything for them when they come back, even though it's the, the, the Senate develops a level of inertia with problems that everybody admits are there. They just don't deal with them because they don't want somebody else to get the credit for it. So it sort of lurches along and then you get the more radical leaders, the demagogues, the, the Sullas, the Pompeys, the Caesars come along. And I guess you get the, the Pompeys and the Caesars who, thanks to these great new conquests, are richer than anyone in Roman history has ever been before. So rich that you can actually destabilise the in, entire political system. Well, you can do. I mean, with a lot of them, Caesar in particular, they don't necessarily want to. They've been given the power to do all this. They've made themselves famous, successful. They expect the state to say, well, well done. Aren't you wonderful? And instead, the state says, well, actually, we'd like to put you on trial. Or at least not the state, but enough of a faction. Again, it's rivalry within the Senate that comes to trump any any sense of the national interest. You know, when you think that the, we're 15th of, of March today, the Ides of March, Caesar was murdered. Brutus and Cassius go off proclaiming peace, freedom and liberty. In Shakespeare's version, that's pretty much what they said. But it's liberty for the aristocracy to go on screwing the provinces for every penny they can get, monopolising senior political office, taking all the glory, all the opportunities. It's not liberty for everybody. Um, they were surprised at the fact that people didn't rally to them because they'd had, they'd had a better life. Things had started to work again under Caesar, even though he was dictator, and it didn't really bother them that he was dictator because it was, it was no skin off their nose. Um, and uh, they just don't really understand. There's this sense of a small group, because it's not even the whole Senate, it's a small group of Senate who are at the top very much wanting to stay there and not letting anybody else get there. So it's, it's, a, it's a mixed, confused period when the civil wars aren't really fought over ideology. It's all about power struggles within the elite. And, you know, you just think if somebody had actually had an ounce of sense, none of this would have really been necessary, but it doesn't happen. And then the emperors, the Julio-Claudians, bring a measure of stability. The empire sort of flourishes. But this is the thing I never understand. It flourishes despite what appears to be spectacular dysfunction at the heart of the imperial court and people poisoning each other and going mad and plotting and killing Caligula. And yet the provinces and the frontiers in that particular period, stay pretty solid. Now, is that because it was a bit lucky and there were no big competitors around at that time? Or that the Romans, had, by that stage, had some sort of technological advantage, you know, better steel or something? Or is it just that what happened in court doesn't really matter and, and, and the machine rumbles on on the ground on the frontier? It's a bit of everything. Um, and you have, obviously, it's, it's a speech that the historian Tacitus made up to give to a general facing rebels on the Rhineland, where he basically says, OK, there are bad emperors and bad governors, but they aren't there all the time and good ones come along again. If you lived around somebody like Caligula or Nero, then that was a very precarious place to be. But most people would never see the emperor other than a coin or a statue. So in the empire, that's the big contrast with someone like Augustus. And the system that emerges probably isn't the one Augustus wanted to create, because Augustus travelled a lot. He spent far more of his life away from Italy and away from Rome than he ever did there. And he visited virtually every province in the empire, most of them several times. He was there, he was available, he listened to local petitions. 
Only Hadrian really does this. Um, a few of the others travel a bit, but nothing like the same extent. But bear in mind, it's, it's one of the flukes that this fellow who is great nephew to Julius Caesar, who is made his principal heir and then proclaims that he's been adopted, even though it's not really legal, and takes on all these older, more experienced people in a civil war, somehow wins. And then in spite of appalling health, you know, he's been thought of as death's door several times, he lives for 44 years after he's become supreme. There aren't many monarchs in history that have a reign that long. And it's centuries before another Roman emperor. You've got to get to the Byzantines before anybody lasts anything like that sort of time. So by the time he's finished, no one can really remember an alternative. Um, you're used to it. And what you can remember of the alternative is civil war, political violence, confiscations, armies marauding through the provinces, Roman armies destroying towns and cities. And you don't want that back. So in a sense, apart from the people immediately around the the emperors and the court, and particularly the Senate, who feel that they have this nostalgic sense that we should really be in charge, we don't want the emperors influenced by unsuitable people like Claudius and his freedmen or his wives or anyone who can influence them. So you're not really touched by it. The other thing is that it's not really until the later years of Nero and briefly perhaps with Caligula that you get an emperor who is a really bad ruler. Many of the decisions they make, the people they appoint to govern the provinces, are up to the job. Um, they might not be the most honest around. They might well have got there because they're considered to be loyal rather than capable, but they're, the average is okay. You, know, you don't have long spates of military disasters under these emperors. They're not choosing absolute buffoons to go and command the armies. The basic structure of the army of the provinces, the administration goes on, and so much power is devolved that it allows the provinces to just get on with their own business anyway. Most cities... Um, you know, will run their own affairs. Most tribes will do it in the West. They keep doing that. Every now and again, the governor will come along and will answer questions, or they can write to the emperor if they've got a petition, but they have their own laws. Most of the taxation is organised locally. There's some done by the imperial officials, but only some. So, you can worship your own gods. Yeah, what you like. exactly. Yeah. You know, unless you're doing something that is considered to be hostile to the Roman Empire, then you're not bothered. I mean, the classic case is um, if you look at the Christians and they're perceived as atheists, they reject all the other gods, therefore they threaten our relationship with the gods that makes us so great. But there's an exchange of letters between the Emperor Trajan and Governor of Bithynia, a chap called Pliny, in the early 2nd century AD. And Pliny has had Christians brought before him, they've been arrested by one of the cities, and he basically adopts this cunning plan of asking them three times whether they're a Christian or not. And if they say, no, I'm not, and they revile the name of Jesus, and they make a sacrifice to the Emperor, they can just go. If they don't, then his comment is, well, they ought to be killed just for their stubbornness. Um, but when he writes to Trajan, he says, you've done the right thing. That's how you deal with these cases. However, don't go looking for these people. Only, only try them if they're brought to you by the locals. So if the locals aren't bothered, neither are we. We don't actually consider this to be a subversive group, but what we want are the cities to be happy and the local areas to be content. So if they're bothered, if they're worried, and they think this is a problem, okay, we'll do something about it. Otherwise... So there's, it sort of sums up the Roman attitude of government, that they don't, don't go looking for trouble unless it comes to you, really. They're not trying, in the way of modern governments, to direct the, the nature of life in the provinces. They pretty much allow people to get on with their own affairs. So uh, and you mentioned Trajan there. There are decades of upheaval within the empire. But on the whole, so take Trajan's reign. The empire reached its vast extent. You, could you travel from Cumbria to Syria 
on the roads, uh, enjoying the Pax Romana? I mean, could you, you, you could, could you buy things on credit? Or how, how did it work if you're a merchant, if you're a traveller? It's, they don't, the Romans don't really for trade develop ideas of corporate law and this sort of thing, but they do arrange systems of banks that allow money transfer without you physically having to lug all this silver or gold around. Travel is a lot easier than it ever had been before, and you can see that just by the goods that turn up and the people that turn up. You know, when you have, there's the tombstone near Castleville in the British Museum of Regina, this woman of the Cacciavalloni, just north of the Thames, whose husband is Barates, a Palmyrene from a city out on the Silk Road. And it's all, she's dressed as this sort of, you know, Roman matron sitting in a chair, even though she's a former slave. All in Latin, apart from the last line at the bottom that's in Aramaic, which says, Regina, the wife of Barates, alas. You know, but this fellow has travelled thousands of miles and is either a soldier or has set up in business, we're not quite sure, on the northern fringe of the empire. It's amazing. Uh, I mean, even yeah. today, it would be quite unexpected for someone in that woman's position to marry someone from the deserts of Syria, even today. Yeah, I mean, and that's it, extraordinary. It, it's, uh, but it's, this is the mixture that, that you have with the Romans. And it's, I mean, you start the, it's, it's not just goods which you do see everywhere. And you can recognise the same styles of pottery, of art, hairstyles even. People copy the statues of the women in the imperial family and you'll find women in Egypt doing their hair the same way. Um, Jewellery, all of these things, wines, but also ideas. Um, you know, classic cases being religions like Christianity, Mithraism, some of these that move around. But when you think you can find theatres, amphitheatres all over the world, a lot of the big buildings are recognisably the same, whether they're here in Britain or North Africa. And the plays that are being performed, the mimes in particular, these sort of dances performed to music and song that told mythological stories, the same ones, province after province after province. So you start to wonder, are are people actually humming the same tunes up on the time that they're humming out of the Euphrates? And that's, again, it's something that we think of as so modern. Um, and with the speed of travel, which is still no faster than a, a ship can sail or a horse can ride, nevertheless, that is happening. So it is something different. That's not to say, I mean, there are obviously, you can only, you know, again, read the Book of Acts, look at the, the missionary journeys of Paul and people like that, and he talks about you know, the perils of storm and bandits and this sort of thing. There was crime, there were natural disasters, there were threats of, you know, Epictetus, the philosopher, advised people, well, if you, you know, if you hear this bit of the road's a bit dodgy, crime-wise, then wait till somebody official comes along and travel along sheltered by their escort. But the travel doesn't stop. The fact almost that there is this banditry and piracy that pops up now and again is an indication that they could profit the sheer scale of travel, of transport, of trade that's going on. Even to the, you know, the, the classic one everyone trots out these days, um, when they analyse the, the polar ice caps, the pollution levels are higher in the first and second centuries AD until the Industrial Revolution. And it's that height of the Principate. Um, so, you know, they can even destroy the planet more quickly than anybody till the modern era. It, it's... Hello, host of Dan Snow's History at Podcast here. History isn't just dates and facts. It's about the incredible stories that shape our world. Three times a week on my podcast, my expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery, and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power-hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover or just looking for a good tale, you want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you go to the frontier, there are 
you know, enemies across that frontier. Would the people on the frontier have all been sort of Roman legionaries, or would they have been locals, uh, you know, working for the for the, the, the local elites, you know, specialising in the perhaps light cavalry in the desert, or, or uh, you know, different kind of slingers and archers re- recruited locally? So, sort of, would the Roman army, quote unquote, have looked like quite a, well, quite heterodox, quite polyglot? Yes, and of course you've got to remember that you know we talk about the Roman army, but it's around for an incredibly long period. You know, um, I remember writing a book on Roman warfare in a series on the history of war, and there were about three or four volumes on the Second World War. I got one to cover a thousand years of Roman military history. Um, it does develop; it does change from the beginning. Almost at any period, at least fifty percent of a Roman army will be not citizens. They'll be foreigners. They'll be allies. They'll be auxiliaries. And the Romans boast of the fact that if they find an enemy who fights well or has a technology or a tactic that's good, they copy it. No shame whatsoever. We'll just make more of them and we'll do it back to them on a bigger scale. So, you know, the gladius sword, the famous short sword of the Roman legionary, is the gladius hispaniensis, copied from the Spanish. Male armour probably comes from the Gauls. Um, The saddle is copied from perhaps the Gauls or from some of the steppe tribes. We're not quite sure yet. So they take these things on. They recruit lots of people. And... It probably is a little bit like the Britain's Indian Army in the 19th century. We would have all these regiments from different groups. But again, their identity changes. You know, a unit might be called originally the Gauls or the Thracians. But if it gets stationed somewhere for a long time out in Syria, say, they probably don't bother to recruit people from home and send them over there. So you start recruiting other foreigners who end up merging into this Latin-based system of Roman commands, Roman discipline, Roman orders, Roman routine, living in forts that are like a sort of miniature city rather than the the thatched huts you may well have grown up in. Um, So a lot of Roman ideals come in, and after 25 years, under the Principate, an auxiliary soldier who's honourably discharged becomes a Roman. Um, And sometimes their sons will join the legion, sometimes they'll go back and sort of follow a a unit because that's the tradition of the family. So it's a real mixture. When you look at the frontiers, again, this is a vast, vast area. The fringes of the Roman Empire cover thousands and thousands of miles. Very different terrain, very different cultures you're facing. There's no great rival superpower. The Parthians, later the Persians in the 3rd century AD, are the biggest state you ever face, but they're not the equal to the Romans in terms of resources. And... They've got a lot of problems of their own. You know, dynastically, there are constant struggles in the royal family. And what you find is that you get people who've lost out on those various princes and kings and exiled rulers run to Rome and get sheltered there, get put up in a nice villa somewhere, sometimes bringing their attendants who become an auxiliary unit. Nobody goes the other way. There are no Romans fleeing to Parthia to say, oh, I need sanctuary here, but will you help me restore me to fortunes there? That just doesn't, other than briefly in the Civil War period, it doesn't happen until the Byzantine era and much later on. So you get a sense of the sheer scale of Rome. But there are peculiarities. It's not, um, a lot of the, the contact over the frontiers is entirely peaceful. You've got the people sailing to India, Sri Lanka, trading in both directions. Um, and communities of Romans living in India and communities of India, Indians living on the Red Sea ports in Egypt, in the Roman province, and probably further afield. Um, you've got contacts with the, the Garamantes in the deserts of Libya. Um, you know, there's one account of one of late first century, a Roman official accompanies the one of the kings of this, this people on a, a raid that's probably to find slaves down as far as Lake Chad. You know, I mean, these are huge distances where there are Romans, there are trading settlements in Scandinavia, although the Romans never formally go there. You could find more Roman swords from outside the empire than from inside. 
Um, a lot of them from Denmark and turn up in bogs or graves, this sort of thing. So goods are going everywhere. People are traveling. But there are elements where these are frontiers that are insecure. You've only got to look at Hadrian's Wall and the time, effort, resources put into that. No government's going to spend that money unless there is a real reason for it. Because Britain has a big garrison in proportion to its size, and a lot of that garrison's concentrated in this small place. So there's clearly a threat, though it's probably not a threat that will conquer the province, but it's a threat of constant raiding of small-scale things which will destabilise your territory. I think what's really interesting about the Romans is how often uh, units get cut off, ambushed, surrounded, massacred, basically how often the Romans lost, You know, whether it's big battles against Hannibal or, or just up and down the frontier, and yet they... They never, well, it took a long time for Rome to fall. They didn't mind, they absorbed loss really well, didn't they? And they just came back and they came back at it. They take war very personally. It's almost this sense that it, any war is a fight for survival. The war with Hannibal, you could say, well, it really was. Um, Hannibal probably didn't think that way. He was thinking, well, let's just have a nice negotiated peace. I've showed I'm better than you. When you think Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire by winning about three big battles and a few sieges, and they said, yep, yeah, fair enough, Gov, it's a fair cop your king. Hannibal inflicted far more serious losses on the smaller state of Rome, and they didn't give in. And he could never understand that. After Cannae, when he'd killed at least 50,000 Romans and Italians in a day, you know, that's more fatalities than the first day of the Somme, he sent an ambassador with the people who were going to negotiate about prisoner exchange, which is the normal thing after a battle. The ambassadors there expecting to think, yeah, well, you know, they're going to talk peace now. They've got to realise this is not good for them. A third of the Senate has just died in a day. And yet the Romans tell the ambassador that if he isn't off their territory in 24 hours, they will, he'll lose diplomatic immunity and they'll kill him. And no other state would act like that. It's just, it's, it's odd in the ancient world. There is something peculiarly Roman about this determination. It's a, as I say, it's a sense that everything is a life or death struggle, so that a war will only end either in your destruction or the enemy's. The enemy's ceasing to be a threat, which might mean you've destroyed them, or probably means you've absorbed them and they're now friends and people you can rely on. So they keep this mentality until very late when the empire really is crumbling in the 4th and 5th centuries. There's, there's a sense that, you know, a classic case, the only province really they lose through a rebellion is the province of Germany between the Rhine and the River Elbe. Arminius in AD 9 rebels, destroys three legions. Um, you've probably got part of the site of the battlefield now at Karl Kreiser, um in Germany. A governor... Three legions are killed in a day. The rest of the the garrisons and the civilian settlements in the province are swept away. The Romans launch punitive expeditions for the next few years, beat Arminius, but don't really defeat him. And he keeps on struggling. And they never go back. But a 100 years later, the historian Tacitus talks about their ongoing war with the Germans. And nobody's been trying to prosecute this for generations, but there is this sense, this is a sort of itch somewhere, that eventually the Romans will have to scratch and finish off. So they do have that memory, but they've also got the pragmatism that successive rulers think, well, actually, it's really not worth it. Um, And you do get that sense starts in the early first century AD with Augustus and Tiberius, where they're looking at what's left outside their empire and sort of almost doing an assessment of profit and thinking, well, okay, we could conquer Ireland or we could conquer, occupy all of northern Scotland. But actually, the money we spend on the garrison is going to be more than anything we'll raise. So let's just sort of Make sure they don't do anything we don't like. Let's dominate them from a distance. Let's threaten them, but also bribe them. Let's have diplomatic contact. Let's make sure they know we're in charge, but we don't need to be there physically. Um, you know, Augustus talks about Parthia as part of his empire because the Parthian king had sent an 
embassy to submit to him. India is part of his empire. Britain is part of his empire. But they've got nowhere near it. But it's that sense that they're not going to mess with us. Therefore, for, Ro for the Romans, imperium is not a physical thing, empire in our sense. It's your power. It's your sort of might in the world. And if people don't do anything to weaken that or do anything against that, then that's okay. So it's something you had to meet challenges to it. But otherwise, it never required you to go and physically occupy a place and sort of put up the flag and say, right, this is now Roman. Okay, well, let's, so let's talk about the end of the Pax Romana, certainly in, in the West. We were all brought up as, as kids in, in the old days to be sub, um, pupils of Gibbon, and it was because of they all got a bit soft and they all got too luxury-loving and they started squabbling and the Christians made them all pacifists. More recently, I've been reading about the fact they were just, they were just defeated on the battlefield. Why do you think this, this Pax Romana stretching from uh, northern England right the way up to the walls of Byzantium, why does that, that come to an end? It comes this is a end. huge question. I, I, this is a monstrous, <laughs> monstrous question I'm asking you. It's a simple answer. It was all due to lead water pipes poison everybody. Now, that was one bright idea that came out a few years back. It's actually a very slow process. When you think that, you know, the height of the British Empire is maybe 100 years, 200 years, all told, really, you can talk about it as a major thing from the sort of, you know, middle of the 18th century through to just immediately after the Second World War. Augustus and the Roman peace last that long. And then it's not till 476, so 500 years after Augustus has won the civil war, that the last emperor to rule in the Western Roman Empire is deposed. It's not much of an empire by then, but it's still there. Byzantines go on for another thousand years till the, the Turks sack Constantinople in, you know, 1450s. So we are dealing with something that in terms of its sheer longevity is completely different. My take on this is that it rots very slowly from the inside. Um, and there are two rather interesting things that, well, one that happens and one that doesn't happen from the early 3rd century AD onwards. The first is from 218 AD, right down to 476 AD. There are only three decades without a civil war. And it becomes very, very easy to become Roman emperor, but extremely difficult to stay Roman emperor. And the enemies you fear are not the Germans or the Persians or anybody from outside. It's another Roman. Because the, the outsiders can't really defeat you. Even quite late on, you know, there's never going to be a Persian army turning up on the banks of the Tiber in Rome. But the Romans can march down the Tigris and Euphrates valleys time after time, burn down Tessaphon, you know, capture the cities of Seleucia, get to the very Persian or Parthian heartland and force them to give in. They just don't have the capacity to do that in return. No German tribe is going to overrun the entire Roman Empire. They just don't have the manpower, the strength, the, the, the military ability to do it. The Romans remain bigger than anybody else in the world, right till the late 4th, early 5th centuries. And the combined resources of the two halves, the Western and Eastern Empire, together should be a match for absolutely anything. But you waste your strength fighting yourself all the time and time again. There's a very good study of the army in the late 4th, 5th century that points out that even in this period, when we see the, the army is in decline, not as efficient as it used to be, not supported by the same infrastructure of bases, of training facilities, pay, promotion, all this sort of thing that it had before, it still wins most of the battles that it fights, in fact, nearly all. The thing he doesn't say is that most of those battles are in civil wars, so it also technically loses most of the battles it fights as well. And even though the losing side will quickly be recruited to the victors, the dislocation to a, a, a military system, 
in terms of not just the casualties, but the promotion, the discipline, the sense that you never quite know who's in charge, because if there is a rebellion, if your general does decide to stand against the emperor, you've got to make a quick call. Well, do I follow him and risk getting killed with him or do I stand up to him and then risk getting killed by his supporters? Who's going to win? Like the late Republic, none of these civil wars are fought about ideology, about different political programmes. It's purely about power. So the Rome, Pax Romana, the British enemy it faces, are the Romans themselves. And it comes to the point where an emperor is far more interested in staying in power than actually dealing with any problems. So you divide up the command structure, provinces get smaller, authority split between the military and civilian administrations, just to make it difficult for anybody to marshal enough support to stand against you. In the old days, you would have given the entire garrison of Britain civil authority, supreme military authority to one man, and you trust him to deal with any problems, including major wars. By the late empire, the emperor has to go himself to the place because he won't trust anybody with that much power. So that's an interesting thing. But the striking thing which really tells you about the depth of the Pax Romana is this. In spite of all this chaos, in spite of this system rotting away, there are no independence movements anywhere in the empire. No one rebels saying, right, they're weak now, I'd like to be a Gaul again, or a Spaniard, or a Syrian. All people want to be is Roman, and they have no sense at all of any identity that's beyond that. You might get a rebellion in Britain where they raise up an emperor, but they want eventually that man to deal with their problems and then be emperor of the Roman Empire. You know, compare this to the sort of winds of change sweeping through um, the world after the Second World War and the different reactions of the various empires, but the result being the same in either way, where you just had European-educated independence movements everywhere that flourished and a strong sense that these empires couldn't last, they would be replaced. It just doesn't happen. And right the way into the 5th century, even some of the Germans, the Franks, the Visigoths, people like this coming in and creating these kingdoms, they're really trying to get a piece of the action. They want the luxuries and the perks of living in the Roman Empire, they just like to be in charge of their little bit of it. So that's a measure just of some of its sheer longevity. When you think that Britain is one of the, the last provinces to be conquered and the Romans are here for 350 years, more than that, you know, that's taking us back to the Civil War period here. And, you know, how much do we feel those issues as live today? How much do we identify with... Your people lived a lot less long, so that's generations it's and incredible. generations. I mean, it's, it's just... you. They just didn't remember anything else. And the Rome has given them a lot. It's given them that culture, that comfort, but it's also the people are used to it. And maybe it hasn't been quite as good, but it's declined so slowly that people haven't necessarily realised just how bad things have got. So, I mean, there's a, there's a rather sad story from 5th century Gaul where some travellers are entertained by a local bishop to a Roman bath. They think it's the height of civilization. But what this fellow's done is his slaves have gone out to the garden, dug a big hole put water in it, dropped heated stones in and put a tent over the top as a canopy. And that's their Roman bath. You, know, you don't have the technology you used to have, but you want to be desperately civilised and part of this culture because that's, you know, that's, that's the best the world has to offer. And even think from the Christian perspective, something like St. Augustine has to write the city of God to sort of reassure Christians, Rome's been sacked, but the world might not be ending straight away. You know, things can go on because people really struggle to imagine it. You know, with the empire gone, What's left? Now, that's a good question. So what was left? What does the end of the Pax Romana... Tell us about the Pax Romana. Are you a continuity or change kind of guy? Um, Definitely change. I mean, there is a big problem in that you've only got to look at most archaeological sites, especially in Britain. Look at the 
small finds, the little bits of material culture that turned up. From before the Roman period, you'll have a couple of boxes. After the Roman period, a couple of boxes if you're lucky. From the Roman period, you'll have crates of the stuff. Loads of it. Sheer quantity is different. I think it emphasises just how much of an achievement the Pax Romana was, because suddenly you're back to a situation where it's little petty kingdoms and little petty chiefs fighting each other, where your enemy is not likely to have come from very far away, but he might well still burn your house down and chop your head off. We assume that, as I say, the modern idea of peace should be natural. It should just break out where sensible people live together. The experience of the ancient world and a good deal of the modern world is that that's not the case, that you simply get little groups trying to dominate and steal from others. And that, as always with these things, one attack encourages others because you want to get your revenge or you're frightened or you want to make sure that the same thing doesn't happen to you. The changes are massive. You, you know, you've only got to say that we have the tiniest, tiniest fraction of 1%, if you don't mind mixing the ways of, of measuring, of the literature written in the Roman period has survived. It just went. And literacy levels drop immensely. You know, you might find a stylus pen in a site from 5th century, 6th century Britain, but very few people were actually capable of reading or writing compared to the vast numbers in the Roman period. You're getting goods that you used to have things that have been made thousands of miles away. Everything becomes local. Everything is much more basic. The change is drastic. It is gradual in places, though it can come along with some rather nasty, sharp shocks. It's much slower nearer the Mediterranean, where you're still linked to the Eastern Roman Empire, and where civilization is rather more deeply entrenched than it is, say, in Britain, anyway. But there is this terrible, it's this academic fashion to see the sort of transformation of the Roman Empire into the early medieval world, because we don't say the Dark Ages anymore because it might upset people. It's a bit like saying somebody's transformed from a living person into a corpse. I mean, it, this is a very violent, very disturbed process that leaves nearly everybody far worse off than they were before. And particularly in Britain, oh, that's the interesting thing about the province of Britannia, is it actually is almost the worst case scenario, isn't it? It's the it place is. where Roman rule is almost, well, civilization is almost entirely wiped out. Well, it moves, and it's, again, um, migration is a terribly unfashionable thing amongst archaeologists these days. The old sort of Victorian view that you've got waves of invaders, so you know, I can remember there was this marvellous magazine when I was growing up, Look and Learn, would have these pictures of sort of Saxons and Angles storming ashore like, um, you know, Gold Beach on June the 6th sort of thing. Nowadays, they're trying to claim that people sort of just decide to become German. It's, they adopt an art style and a language. It's complete nonsense. It might be that the numbers coming in are very small, but they're the numbers of people with weapons, with the organisation to dominate a region. And, you know, this is not a voluntary thing. This is all done by violence, by compulsion, by force. And frankly, you've only got to look at the news today to see the scale of human migration that can just happen. And that wasn't happening a few years ago. You know, we just didn't see this in Europe on that scale. It doesn't happen all the time in the Roman period. You can't explain everything in the Iron Age, the Roman period or post-Roman period as new people arrive, therefore everything changes. And there are probably always plenty of locals who stay there. But groups and particularly political and military elites move around. And so quite large populations. It's a pattern you get from Julius Caesar. It's, it's, it's how he justifies his intervention in Gaul. It's stop migrants coming from Switzerland from coming across the Rhine. He's not making this stuff up. Large-scale migrations do happen. People do move around. They just move around in a very different way to how they had in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is something closer to the modern sense because it's individuals travelling on business. Or it's also poor devils who've been... Um, made slaves and are just sold off and sent to the other end of the empire. So, I mean, it's, it's not all great. I'm not trying to predict the Romans as this, this age of wonder, peace, and everybody dancing around happily. 
a lot of it's grim but nevertheless what happens before and after just to me emphasizes the scale of that achievement that it was far from perfect but it was a lot better than anything else that was on offer because what else was on offer wasn't great well uh, the fall of the roman empire in the west at least uh, from the greenland ice cap suggests that the planet <laughs> breathed a sigh of relief and a, a brief period of respite before the 18th century game and gave it a good hammering thank you so much for coming on History that was fantastic I hope you'll come on again soon to discuss all things Roman because everyone's obsessed by it in the meantime how can people get your book what's it called uh, it's called Pax Romana it's out in August I think the 11th but I can't quite remember um, you can get information on adriangoldsworthy.com or on the Orion Books website Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.